All right. So, do today solar observations. So any others you have, you can submit to me after class or on D2L before 6 o'clock tomorrow. And then coming up on Friday is homework number 6. Next week we have two quizzes. Third iTunes quiz will be up all week starting on Monday. Up all week starting on Monday covering the pictures through Fridays. And quiz 6 on chapters 13 and 14 uh, will be available next weekend. Uh, coming up are a couple of the extra credit assignments that I gave. The exam replacement will be due on the 18th. And the other extra credit assignment will be due, due the following Monday. And the third article review and final article review coming up is due the 22nd. So a couple things coming, coming up there, a few things coming up. If you don't have copies of the extra credit assignment, let me know after class. I brought copies today. I can get copies if you missed either of those uh, the day I gave those, day I gave those out. Uh, also scheduled, the final exam schedule is out and we are scheduled for Wednesday uh, from 9 to 11 here. So if there are conflicts, talk to me individually. I'll see what I can, what I can work with you. I can usually try to work something, something out on that. Um, so that. But that is our scheduled time for it. It will be Wednesday, December 11th from 9 to 11 here. The exam will be uh, two parts. It'll be one part will be the last material after the fourth exam, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. And the rest will be cumulative covering materials from your first four exams. So no matter how, how bad you did on them, don't shred those exams. Hold on to them to use them to study because that, those, those four exams will be half of your final. So make sure you're holding on to those and finding the correct answers. Questions? Questions? Nope. All right. Picture of the day for today is a creature aurora. So aurora here taken over Norway, the image of it taken over Norway. You can see the greenish glow uh, due to particles from the sun striking the Earth's atmosphere and forming sort of a Halloween shape. This is, we're well past Halloween now, almost a week, but this picture was apparently taken on Halloween, so uh, ties, back in that, ties back in that way. But maybe some sort of creature you can make out of the shapes, out of the shapes in there. Uh, particles from the sun are always, particles are always leaving the sun and streaming away towards the earth. We have the solar wind uh, that is constantly a stream of particles. But usually when we see the aurora, it's when we get a burst of particles. Solar flare, or we call a coronal mass ejection. Big, big amounts of material heading towards the earth and striking it and being deflected by the earth's magnetic field and coming down around the magnetic poles of the earth. And that's why we constantly see pictures of the aurora from places like Norway, very far north, Canada, uh, Alaska. We get a lot of them there and you don't see lots of pictures of the aurora from you know, South Florida or from California. You don't get, the, get them out there because all those particles are streaming around the Earth's magnetic field and they come in at that weakest point where those field lines are coming into the Earth and that's where they can strike the atmosphere. When they strike the atmosphere, they excite, in this case, the oxygen atoms and cause them to glow. And like hydrogen has a red glow, oxygen can have, has a greenish glow. And we get that green uh, sort of shimmering effect that will occur when, a, when the particles strike the Earth's atmosphere. You may be able to notice that you can actually see the stars. They're not solid. These are not like solid like clouds. They are just light. You can actually pick out some of the stars perhaps through there if you look at the image. You're actually able to see the stars through the aurora. They're not blocking out anything. They're just sort of a shimmering light in front of that. So pretty picture of the aurora here. When we get any 
Um, intense solar flares, you get a really intense one, you can actually get the aurora you know, as far south as us pretty easily uh, when you get some, more, some of the more intense flares that happen to be directed towards the, towards the Earth. So, questions on that? I will have your exams back and you should have seen exam grades should be up, so, should, so are all of the lab grades that were turned in. Um, anyone who just turned them in now, there, you might have a zero on it, it'll get fixed when I, when I grade those. Uh, but you should have all of those up there. I'll have everything back for you on Friday. So, but if you want to see what you got, or if you don't want to see what you got, you can wait till Friday and get it back, or you can uh, go take a look now and see what, see what you ended up with. Average ended up about right. It was like a 72, 72, 73% on it, which is about typical for where things, where things end up. All right, questions, questions? Otherwise, we'll... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Um, are we going to be allowed to use summary sheets like you were with all the you, other things? Yes, you can, use the, you can use the summary sheets for the final. You, even though I've been, say, and I've been saying save those old exams, you can't use the old exams for the finals, though. So you can't bring your old exams with all the answers on them for that half. You can use them for studying, but it, it really condenses your studying when you only got to condense those four. But you can use the summary sheets for all of the, all of the sections. If you want to bring the old ones, too, but primarily you'll want it for the, newer, for the newer ones. But yes, you can use those for the final as well. Good, thank you. Any other questions? I'll tell you, I'll go over it again a little bit, little bit closer. We're still a little over a month away. All right, well, we were here last time. We were looking at black holes, not seeing a whole lot, right? Black hole doesn't stand out too much. Uh, by its definition, it absorbs, uh, absorbs all the light, doesn't let any light escape from it. And that's what happens if the remnant left behind after a star goes through its life is more than about three times the mass of the Sun. Not a very precise number, it's sort of approximate. We don't really have a good understanding of how much pressure a big ball of neutrons can handle. We can get a pretty good, somewhat of an idea. It's probably not, you know, it might be, but it might be two and a half solar masses, maybe three and a half. There's a range around there where we really don't have a complete understanding. But if it's much more than that, there's nothing that can stop the collapse. You put too much pressure on the star and it just completely collapses down until nothing is left. Except all the mass is still there, so I say nothing's left in terms of size. It just keep, keeps condensing down denser and denser and denser and smaller and smaller and smaller until you take that entire thing that is the mass of several suns and you can hold it between your fingers when you squeeze them together as tight as you possibly can. Now, Theoretically, that's what it says right now. That's what our physics say right now will happen to that star if it collapses. It'll just collapse down to a point, so an infinitesimally small point, but still have all of that mass contained within it. Can you imagine that? Probably not. I can't really, I can't say that I can imagine what that really means to have, you know, to be able to hold three stars between my fingers. Of course, the gravity there would have, you know, overwhelmed you long before anyway, but the whole idea is that you know, trying to imagine something that, that collapsed that small with still that much matter in it. And what happens when you get that small, the gravity gets stronger and just as it's easier to, if you watch the astronauts on the moon, you know, they can bounce around very easily because the gravity is so much less, the escape velocity is, is lower. There are asteroids, you can land on an asteroid, there are asteroids where you could throw something. You could take a rock and throw it and throw it, launch it into orbit. So you can get it actually have it throw it with faster than the escape velocity. The opposite effect here, you've got so much mass 
so concentrated into a small point that the escape velocity is greater than the speed of light. So light tries to escape, it can't get out. And that's how it gets its name as a black hole, because you can't see anything. Once something gets inside the black hole, and I'll define what we mean by inside here in just a minute, because how do you get inside a point, right? But there's a whole range around it where, this, where, the light, where light cannot escape. That's what we call a black hole. So extremely intense gravity, if you're close to it. Question, yeah? Why do they, why do black holes evaporate? They evaporate because of a nature of particles and a nature of space that you can create a particle and an antiparticle. That, no? An electron and a positron, just to do one that we've talked about, that we mentioned when we talked about the nuclear reactions. You can create them. If you happen to create one near a black hole, you have the possibility that one goes into the black hole and one comes out. Can't see the one that goes in, but that one comes out. That energy had to come from somewhere. It ends up coming from the black hole. So you're slowly sucking energy out of that black hole. It takes an incredibly long time for that to happen. And for these black holes this size, you know, the evaporation time is longer than the age of the universe. Well, I said that because the particle colliders, they make, mm -hmm. they, yeah. they make like microscopic black holes. And they evaporate like. Around, you know, for yeah. Yeah, the very tiny ones. Yeah, the tiny one. Well, the tiny ones that they're creating have so little mass that they're not. I mean, a black hole is not that is not that bad and dangerous as it sounds. It sounds scary just because of that. But if you turned the sun into a black hole right now, it's going to get cold. No more heat. It's going to get dark. No more light. But the Earth's going to happily wrap, wrap around it and not change. It won't affect the orbit of the Earth. It's not like you turn the sun into a black hole with one solar mass. Don't change its mass. The Earth's going to orbit around it just fine. No. no. Mercury would be far enough away from it that it wouldn't make any difference. You have to really be close to it to really see these effects. And in fact with the sun, I'll give you the number in a couple in a couple slides, you probably have to be within, you know, kilometers of that, you know, tens to hundreds of kilometers to really see a significant change. In the, in the effects of the black hole. So it's not just going to suck everything in. So if the sun turns into a black hole right now, well, it is going to kill us all just because it's going to get dark and very cold quickly. But other than that, it's not going to suck us in. All right, so what do we mean by the size of a black hole? The size of a black hole is given by what we call the Schwarzschild radius, which is the area around the black hole. So there's our black hole. Little speck, way too big, you know, much, much enlarged to normal size. And then around that, there's a, there's a radius. When you're that far away from the black hole, the gravity is such that the, to escape from this level, you need to travel at the speed of light. So if you're any closer than this, you'd have to be traveling greater than the speed of light to be able to get away from that black hole. If you're further out, you could travel less than the speed of light, so you can know things about this. So this is what we call the Schwarzschild radius. Oops, no T in his. It's the other guy who has the T. Sorry. I'll do a big Z there. Schwarzschild radius or the event horizon. Event horizon. 
So anything has a Schwarzschild radius. We do. The Earth does. If you could compress all the material in the Earth down to about a centimeter, so that's all of us and everything that makes up the Earth, the core, the crust, all the continent, you know, everything, you can press that all down to, this, to a centimeter in size, you would essentially make the Earth a black hole. You would increase its gravitational force so much just by compacting it down that, that, to that amount. Now, that doesn't increase the Earth's mass. You still have the exact same amount of mass. For the Sun, you've got to compress everything to about three kilometers. That would become the point of no return if you got that close. If you compressed the Sun down to something that was less than three kilometers, at that distance of three kilometers, light could no longer escape. You'd be able to see effects a little ways out that, beyond that. No, maybe 20, 30, 50, 100 kilometers significant effects. But when you get out to the distances of the planets, they wouldn't notice the difference. In fact, all the planets orbit the sun right now just as though it were a point. There's all, all its matter is concentrated at this tiny point at the center. It doesn't matter. Only effects occur when you get really, really close to the black hole. But event horizon just means that really that you cannot know anything that goes on in here. You could, in a ma very massive black hole, if you could get a star inside there that decided to go supernova, blow up lots of energy, more energy than we can even begin to imagine here on Earth, we'd never know about it. So you get a black, you get something in there, you get the most massive explosion you can possibly think about, that energy is not getting out of the outside. It cannot get out of that event horizon. So there's no way to get out. Can you get in? Yeah. Easy enough to get in, but once you get in, you're stuck. There is no way to get out because you can't travel faster than light. So unless we find a way to travel faster than light, Still haven't. Einstein told us that about a hundred years ago, that nothing can travel faster than light. And people have tried. No one's been able to prove him wrong yet. Will we eventually? Maybe we'll find something else that works a little bit differently, or there is something that we don't know. But as of right now, there's no way to get there. If you get inside that event horizon for whichever, whatever way, you know, there are ways to get in there and survive. So you could survive that trip in. The gravity is not that intense for some of the black holes when you're crossing this event horizon. But you cannot know anything and you cannot communicate outward. People could send you signals in, but you can't send anything back out because we have nothing that will travel faster than light to be able to escape from that gravity. There are time effects that will slow down, and I'll talk about those in a, in a little bit. I'll go into those a little bit more. But yeah, time will, time will slow down. That's one of the problems when you get real close to a strong source of gravity. Time slows down. So it does all sorts, starts to do all sorts of weird things that you know, give you problems with in terms of trying to be able to, in being able to communicate. So let me do special relativity and then I will come back and look at, we'll look at the gravity a little bit. But Einstein gave us two theories of relativity. Uh, one talks about gravity. That's general relativity that we'll get to in a little bit here. The other is special relativity, which talks about motion. So it doesn't have anything to do with gravity, just talks about motion. And special relativity is based on mainly this one main postulate that says the speed of light is the maximum possible speed. That there is no way to travel faster than the speed of light. And what that means, it's, and also, second part of that is that it always has the same value. No matter who's making the measurement, you always get the same value for the speed of light. Now that doesn't happen in every day. The example here given, 
Okay, you're, someone's driving a car, shoots, shoots a gun out of it. Okay, if he shoots the gun and the muzzle velocity is a thousand kilometers per hour, then the guy in the car measures it at a thousand kilometers per hour. But if the car is moving at a hundred kilometers per hour, you add the two speeds together. Right? That's how we do things in you know basic uh, Newtonian physics. So this person sees them as sees the bullet traveling at 1,100 kilometers per hour. So you get the get the bullet get the bullet moving, and you've got the car moving. You can ex you can accelerate, get the bullet moving actually faster than just the muzzle velocity. That doesn't happen with light. So if you're in a spaceship that is traveling so many times faster than we can begin to imagine, one tenth the speed of light. So tiny fraction of the speed of light, but still faster than anything we can begin to imagine that we can do here on Earth. And it shines out a light beam, it's going to measure it traveling at the speed of light. Right? Just like the guy here measures the bullet speed as being exactly the speed of the bullet, not the speed of the bullet plus the speed of the car. When the light beam travels here, this observer measures the speed of the light beam, and instead of getting the speed of light plus the speed of the rocket, so getting 1.1 or 10% faster than light, he still gets exactly the same measurement. So what, we're really, what Einstein's really saying is that Newton was wrong. This isn't correct. There's really a much more complicated way to add those velocities together. I'm not going to go into all the math of that, so you don't have to worry about it. But there is a much more complicated way that reduces down to essentially adding them together when you're talking about very low speeds. And yes, relative to the speed of light, what's a thousand kilometers per hour? It's nothing. It's standing still. So when you're talking about very, very low speeds, everything Einstein does reduces down and gives you exactly what Newton says. But when you talk about very high speeds, they differ and they give you very differing effects that will happen when you're traveling at very high speeds. Now, we can't travel at very high speeds. You can't launch anybody in a rocket at th that kind of speed. But we can accelerate particles to those speeds. So we can actually see some of these effects in some of the large colliders when we can accelerate particles to you know, 90% or plus of the speed of light. So you can get them really moving there and we can actually observe some of these, some of these effects. Now, let's see. The other things that he says are in special relativity is or are that there is no absolute frame of reference. So there's no, no frame of reference that's fixed for everybody. Meaning that you know, all motion is relative. There's not one person, that one area that is we can say that this is at rest and everything moves relative to that. Everything is in constant motion relative to each other. And there's no way to tell the difference. There's no way to tell who is really doing the moving. Okay? You may have done that in a car, right? You've ever been stopped at a, at a stoplight and watched this car next to you slowly going backwards and wonder what's going on. Then you realize that you're not, your foot isn't all the way on the brake and you're slowly inching forward. Right? You didn't realize it, but we wonder why is this other car why is this car backing up? It's just relative motion. You don't feel yourself moving, and especially when you're not accelerating, you're just going at a very, very slow speed like that, you don't really notice it. But there's no way to really tell that. There is no way to tell, there are no tests that you can do to say who is really doing the moving unless you get an acceleration. So no absolute frame of reference and that space and time are not separate from each other. Space and time are combined together. So we call space time. So 
easy enough to remember there. But space and time are not independent of each other, but they really depend on each other, when you're, especially when you're traveling at very, very high speeds. All that Einstein does reduces down to what Newton gives us. So the stuff we've been using all works very fine for 99% of everything that we use in, the, in, you know, in everyday life. In fact, everything we use in everyday life. You don't have anything, unless you're a particle physicist working with very high speeds, you know, everything that you use in everyday life you're not going to notice. But these do a few things. When you're traveling at these very high speeds you get a couple of effects. One of which is time dilation, which really just says that a, a moving clock runs slow. So one of the effects of general relativity and using these um, postulates that Einstein gave us says that if you're traveling at a very high speed, your clock will run a lot slower that means it can mean a watch, can mean your internal biological clock. You would age less if you're traveling at high speeds. Question? Yeah. Yes, but still not significantly, because even a little, but, but a little. yeah, there'd be a tiny, tiny little bit. So if you can spin things, get things, get things moving faster and faster. Yeah, you can slow it down. If you spend your whole life in a car. Driving at you know 65 miles an hour, will you live a tiny fraction of a second longer? It's, very, very it's a I mean, it's, you're talking milliseconds at those kind of speeds. They're very tiny. It becomes very extreme when you start getting going close to the speed of light, and you can get to the fact where certain uh, particles have a half-life. They decay after a certain amount of time, right? So we have radioactive elements that might decay. Um, case of uranium, billions of years half-life. But there are some that decay with half-lives of milliseconds, microseconds, you know, one millionth, a millionth of a second. But if they're traveling at very high speeds, some of these are created in the Earth's atmosphere when particles strike. So you get high energy particles from space striking, striking uh, molecules in the atmosphere. They create these little particles. These particles don't live very long. You know, if they live only a millionth of a second, they'll never even make it down to the Earth. Right? Because they're going to decay on that trip down, even if it takes them only a tiny fraction of a second. But they do make it down to the Earth. Why do they make it down to the Earth? Because their clocks are running slow. Because of time dilation, these particles that should never make it down to the Earth can actually be detected at the Earth's surface. Uh, not, not neutrinos, but there's similar types of, there's other types of particles that can be created. Neutrinos have a little, have other properties to them. But the same kind of thing, but there's, um, Trying to think of what they are. The muons that are created up there, there's some a certain type of muon, if I'm recalling correctly, that will be created that actually will, you know, should never make it down to the Earth's surface. Should be created and should disappear within, you know, millionth of a second. But they make it down here because their clocks are running so slow. The faster you go, and that's one way to actually, you know, possibly travel between the stars. Right? If you can get if you can get a rocket going at 90 and 95% of the speed of light. It takes you, you know, four years to get someplace, but your clock is running so, uh, so slow that compared to other observers, you know, you can make that trip and come back and age a lot less than you otherwise would. So, doesn't affect things here on Earth. So, on Earth, according to Earth, the time is traveling, for, traveling forward just fine. 
But it's one way that if you could get going at those kind of speeds, you could actually accelerate, accel visit, be able to visit another planet and come back in a lifetime. Right? You could travel to the nearest star and come back in what? Eight years? Of course, to Earth, you've been gone for a thousand years. So everybody you left behind is gone, but you've only aged eight years. Yeah, question? Isn't there a way to calculate like, the particle compared to you? If it was zooming at the speed of light, how, if it was a year for you, how long it would have been for the particle? There is a way that you can calculate. You can do, there is a calculation. I'm not going through all the, the math of it, but there are ways to do that calculation uh, to explain if you're going at close to the speed of light, you know, how much the time slows down. And it gets drastic. It's like it's hardly anything at, you know, tenth of the speed of light. It's very small. At a quarter of the speed of light, it gets a little more, and it, it goes up. Like, if you're graphing it, it goes up like this. It stays about even, and then all of a sudden it just shoots up as you get to the speed of light. So the difference between going 98% of the speed of light and 99% of the speed of light is tremendous in how much it slows the clock down as compared to going 1 in 2%, going from 1 to 2%. Yeah? During exactly the speed of light, time stops? Technically, but you, nothing with mass can go the speed of light. So that's where it breaks down. You can't actually get anything with any kind of mass cannot travel at the speed of light. So you have to have, you have, to have no mass. And I'll show you why that in just a second here. But yeah, technically then time would stop essentially. So time dilation is one. The other thing is that lengths contract. So if I take this meter stick and I throw it, at half the speed of light and somebody measures the length of it and I throw it in this direction and somebody measures the length of it while I'm throwing it, you know, my incredibly strong arm throwing it at half the speed of light, they're going to measure it at being less than a meter. The faster or closer I can get to the speed of light, the smaller it's going to be. So it's actually going to get shrunk down, literally it'll be shrunk down to somebody observing it from outside. Now of course somebody observing it traveling isn't going to notice it because everything's shrunk down. Yeah. If you're traveling, I'm sorry, if you're traveling. Say, because we look at the stars and it takes it, you know, millions of billions of right. light to get here. The light, that's how long it does take the light to get. I mean, the light still, I mean, it's hard to compare because you can't really think of, if you're tra yes, if you're traveling at the speed of light, time essentially stops, but light has no mass, so it sort of, it breaks down other things. So you couldn't imagine, like somebody traveling at the speed of light, it would be very hard to compare. Compare that. Because if you could, if you could travel at the speed of light, according to Einstein, time stops altogether and you would not age. If you go faster than the speed of light, what would happen then? Time might go backwards, so you'd actually get younger. Scary, huh? <laughs> All right. Oh, one more. And one more. The other thing that happens. So the lengths contract and the mass increases. The mass gets larger and larger the closer you go to the speed of light. We can measure this in particle accelerators, right? We can, we can accelerate electrons to incredibly high, ma high speeds and measure their mass and we can see that as we get them close to the speed of light, their mass can double and triple and quadruple. It gets higher and higher. What happens when you increase the mass of something and you try to keep trying to accelerate it? How, trying to accelerate something of a higher mass, easier or harder? going to be harder. So you're accelerating it, its mass is increasing, you want to keep, you want to get it over the speed of light. 
So you keep accelerating it more and more. Its mass keeps going. You need more and more energy to accelerate it. The mass increases just like this. Gets higher and the goes up steeper and steeper as you get close to the speed of light. It gets to the point where eventually if you want to try to push it over that limit, you know, where is the speed of light? Right there. You want to push it over that limit, you need an infinite amount of energy to accelerate something with an infinite mass. So that's sort of the downside to you know traveling at high speeds. Your clock runs down, but your mass goes up. So yeah. How does that relate to the law of conservation of mass as far as mass increasing? In terms of the law of conservation of mass, let's see. When you are getting, I have to figure out how I'd have to look up again how Einstein did that. I will have to take a look. I mean, I know there is that it's, that it's Einstein's equations that do it, but let me take a look at that and see because I, I, that one I cannot do off the top of my head. It's a good question, but it's not that you're creating or destroying mass. It's an effect of the high speed. So yeah, but I'd, I'd have to look it up a little bit more to really give you a, give you a good answer that's not just you know wishy-washy. <laughs> All right, so that's a little about special relativity. General relativity has some other interesting effects. Now, general relativity is not built on special, I mean, they're completely separate. General relativity has to do with gravity, and general relativity is based on really uh, this postulate here that says that if you're in this closed system, a closed box, so if we could close off this room completely, block out the windows completely so we can't see outside, there is no experiment that we can do that will tell us whether we're sitting here on Earth and gravity is pulling us down, or this entire classroom is traveling through space and constantly being accelerated at exactly the same rate. There's no experiment we can do. Now I gotta block out the window so you can't see anything about motion, but there's no way to tell. There's no experiment. If I am standing on Earth and I drop something, it's gonna fall, right? Gravity's pulling it down. If I'm out in space and I let go of something, there's no gravity to pull it down, but as I let go of it, the floor comes up to hit it. Same effect. So there's no way that there's no experiment that you can do that will tell the difference between these two effects. You would feel gravity just the same. Now again, that is accelerating. That's not traveling at a constant speed. So if you were just in space traveling at a tenth of the speed of light and not changing that speed, then you'd be able to notice. Then you'd notice the weightless effects and everything like that. But this would be sort of like, you know, they talk about artificial gravity in the science fiction. Well, if you're traveling and accelerating at a certain amount, you will keep that, you will have essentially an artificial gravity. If you can accelerate something at the exact same gravitational force that the Earth pulls down, if you can accelerate that object constantly, you will essentially have an artificial gravity exactly equal to Earth's. Exactly equal to what we have here on Earth. But the key here is with Einstein is that there's just no way. There's nothing you can do to, no experiment that you can do that will tell you the difference. Short of cutting a hole in the side of the build, building, but no experiment. You can't drop, a, drop an object. If you do a light beam, it'll do, the same kind, it'll do the same kind of thing. The light will behave exactly the same. And one of the things that it says is that because of this, Sort of gives you an idea of space here, and I'm going to show I'm going to show you a video clip of this in just a minute, trying to explain this a little bit better than just the still images do. But what happens if you imagine this sort of a pool table here? It looks like, but it's with a uh, plastic or rubber sheet that can be deformed pretty easily. And if you put an object in it, 
a massive object, it bends it down, it deforms space. That's what Einstein says does, happens by the sun. Sun is a massive object. Instead of there being a force between the sun and the earth pulling it, out, pulling it, the sun deforms space, makes this big dent in space, and the earth follows along the path that is formed by the sun. So because the sun has deformed space, now the earth follows along the path in space that the, cre- that the sun has created. So a little bit different than Newton's theory that says gravity pulls on, the, pulls on it. Now, both work just fine in the cases when you're very far away from the sources of gravity, but you need Einstein gives you different predictions when you get very close. And that's the example here. If you think of this pool ball instead of a planet, think of it as a light beam. If that light beam passes close to this source of gravity, it's going to get deflected. That means that gravity can bend light. Now that's a difference with what Newton says. We all recall Newton's law of gravity? No, that was too long ago, right? gm1 m2 over r squared? Okay. Well, if we talk about one of those particles being a light beam, how much mass does light have? Zero. Zero. So if we put a zero there, and we take some number and some other number and multiply it by zero and divide by the distance between them, what do we get? Nothing. Nothing. You get zero force. So essentially Newton says there will be no, no deviation of the light. The light will not feel the gravitational force. But according to Einstein, because space is actually bent and light is traveling through that deformed space, now it will bend. And this was one of the first tests of general relativity that was done, was to observe an eclipse. Okay? During an eclipse, the sun is blocked out. Now, the sun's the strongest source of gravity that we can see around. Right? There's other bigger stars, but they're way far away, and trying to get things lined up perfectly is tough. But the sun is very easy to see. During an eclipse, it's blocked out completely, and we can see the stars around it. And we could compare those stars to what they were you know, six months before, whenever, when the sun wasn't anywhere near them. And we can measure the deflection. And that's what was able to demonstrate the idea of um, the bending of starlight and to, to, verify special, to verify general relativity. Now let me go ahead and exit here for right now. And let me do this one video clip. Uh, I've got to pause. What I'm trying to show you here, sort of trying to see it actually there, helps, helps, a, li- helps a little bit. Uh, let's see, we were on here. So gives you an idea of what happens and what eventually happened is that Eddington does go off to observe an eclipse, makes the observations, takes pictures of the eclipse and is able to determine that the deflection that is seen, the amount that the stars seem to change their positions is precisely the amount that is predicted by Einstein's equations. Now, what happens if you get close to a black hole? Not a lot, unless you get really close to it. Remember that the, for the sun, the Schwarzschild radius was about 3 kilometers. So if you get within 3, 10, 30, 50 kilometers, you're going to start to notice some of these effects. If you're far away from it, you notice absolutely nothing. Other than that, it's dark. Yeah, if the sun turns into a black hole, again, it will be completely dark. But the black holes are not just going to suck in material. So you turn the sun into a black hole, 
don't change its mass, the planets still orbit around it just as they do right now. Gets dark, gets cold, yeah. So you still wouldn't want to live here, but the Earth isn't going to get sucked in, sucked into it. So black holes aren't these great cosmic vacuum cleaners that just grab up everything, everything around them. You have to get very close to it in order for the effects to be seen. So it really would not suck anything else in any more than a regular, regular material would. Now, if it were to absorb, yes, it would increase in mass. Yeah. What? I have them all up on D2L for you. Okay. So, but when you get really close to a black hole, then, then things can happen. If you get close to it, remember the moon? We had tides, right? The moon pulled on the Earth, and it pulled on one side more than it pulled on the other side. So, uh, that can become a problem if you got a really strong gravitational force. What happens if your pull on the near side becomes strong enough compared to the pull on the far side, as compared to your structural integrity of that object? You're going to rip it apart. Question? As yeah. far as we know, it's infinitely gravitationally um, strong, right? If you get down to that singularity point at the center, yes. So it's not infinitely gravitational everywhere. Because it doesn't no. make sense if no. it's of infinite gravity, why is anything out of the Right. Why would anything else? It, oh, that infinite gravity only occurs when you get to that central when you get to that central point. That's the only time. But when you get when you're further away, a little further away, but close, you might get something like this. So you might get a case where you know your black hole is down here and you're approaching the event horizon and you've got now a tidal force. You have a force on this side that is greater compared to the force on this side than the structural integrity of that material. You could rip it apart. So a planet approaching a black hole could get torn apart. A star could get torn apart. But it's when you're getting really close to it. At a large distance, you wouldn't notice it, you wouldn't notice these kind of effects. So only when you're getting really close to the black hole do you actually begin to notice these, these things. So when you get real close, yes, you, could rip, you can rip things apart. And that's actually how we see black holes. We see the energy as they are tearing things apart that get close to them. So otherwise, we would not be able to see it. A black hole would be completely invisible. Could travel right through our solar system. And you know, there wouldn't be enough material scattered around if it's just traveling through that you'd never notice anything. So black hole could travel right through. Yeah, we'd notice gravitational effects. So we'd wonder why is this orbit all of a sudden getting you know, wacky or not quite the same way it should be. But we don't notice the, you wouldn't notice anything major with a black hole coming through because it needs a source. In order to see a black hole, we need some source of fuel. We need to feed the thing. If you give it fuel and start feeding things into it as you tear this apart, you heat it up and you create a lot of energy. If you recall, we talked about nuclear fusion in the sun. We converted a little tiny bit of matter to energy to power the sun. It was like much less than you know, a fraction of a percent. When you're pulling material into a black hole, the intensity of the gravity can end up converting 20 or 30 percent of the material from the matter into energy. Big, big difference. And that tiny fraction is all you need to power the sun. Can you imagine how much energy you're getting out of 20 and 30 percent? Some of these big massive black holes become the most energetic objects that we can see, and we can see them across billions of light years. 
You can see them in the radio. You can see them across the entire spectrum, actually. But radio is where we first found uh, things like quasars that we'll talk about in future chapters. But yeah, because right now we're looking more at the smaller black holes and not the real large, not the real large ones. We'll come back in the next couple chapters to talk about much larger black holes. So, sorry, there's a big, big text slide. Um, we also noticed a few things changing. We noticed, we mentioned the time, di time dilation. We mentioned it in terms of the moving, moving at very high speeds. Well, when you get close to a large source of gravity, clocks slow down as well. So, we're up here on the second floor. If you go down to the first floor, gravity is a little bit stronger. Not much. Again, it's infinitesimal, and you're talking, you know, billionths of billionths of a second change. But clocks run a little bit slower downstairs than they do upstairs. Be a little more of an effect if you were doing it, you know, on uh, the big skyscraper and going up hundreds of floors. You know, there would be there would be an effect that you would know you could you could you could get to the point where you can actually measure it. Could you measure the difference between the first and the second floor here? Probably not. But when you start talking about much larger, you also get a very intense time dilation when you get very close to that black hole. So as that probe gets close to it, time slows down more and more. And for us watching them, they just seem to go, their time seems to go slower and slower and slower and they just get closer and closer, they get closer and closer to the black hole. And really you'd never be able to see them cross it from your perspective. From their perspective, zoom, they cross right through it. So it's one of the just the matter of the perspective and the rel relative motions of everything. We also see a redshift that occurs as things go closer and closer. This is a gravitational redshift. We had the Doppler effect, we had a redshift, right, which was due to motion. This isn't just due to motion, this is due to the strong gravitational fields. So when you have a very strong gravitational field, you can redshift light as well. So if you have radiation trying to leave here and you've got blue light you're shining out from outside the black hole and you're trying to send a signal out in blue light. It's trying to escape from that intense gravity. Normally when things try to escape from gravity they slow down, right? If I throw a ball up in the air it goes slower and slower and slower until gravity pulls it back down. Well, light can't do that. Light can't slow down. It's got to lose energy somehow. Right? You can't slow down light. It goes at the speed of light no matter what. Always goes at the same speed. Yeah. Depending on if you're moving through like a different different substances, you can. But I meant out in, in, a, va in the vacuum. In the vacuum. Yeah. Sorry. In a vacuum, yes. If you're if you, light, light does travel slower slower through glass, slower through the atmosphere, yes. Then you could slow it down significantly. But in, in a vacuum, you cannot. It has the same speed, and we've got a vacuum out here. So you got the light is going at. You want to lose energy. It's got to because it's pulling down. All you do is change the wavelength. So the wavelength is going to get longer and longer and longer. So that blue light you send the signal out might end up being red light by the time it gets out here. You might send x-rays out. And if you're really close to that event horizon, by the time they get out to somebody far away from the black hole, they may be shifted into visible light or infrared or radio waves. So you can have very, very large shifts occurring as you're trying to get away. You're trying to get away from that black hole. Once you get inside, you can't do it. Once you're inside that event horizon, there's just not enough energy you don't have enough energy to be able to get back out. So that's what we mean by a gravitational redshift, a redshift that we're seeing based on the strong gravity. 
the probe or the people that are going into that black hole don't notice it. Again, the observer's going in, the motion is relative, they don't see anything, they're going to go straight into, they're going to cross straight into that black hole. Time may have slowed down, so if you got really close to the black hole and then decided to turn around and come back, you know, might have only taken you a few years, thousand years might have gone by on Earth. Because your clocks were running so slow for that time, even though it only took you a couple years, it might have taken a much longer time on Earth. So similar to the time dilation that we mentioned here, you can get the same effect if you travel close to the black hole. Because you can get as close as you want to that event horizon. It's once you cross that event horizon that you're in trouble and that you're stuck. Now let me see, what was, let me see, we're about out of time here. Yeah, I'll put this up and I'll finish it. This is kind of just showing it, I'll go come back to this on Friday. But this is just kind of showing that probe, showing it a little more picture here. That if you send out visible light, as you get further and further away, you shift it out, you might shift it out to the radio. You might emit x-rays close to the black hole and they might end up coming out as visible light. But those are only the effects when you're close. This is a solar mass black hole, three kilometers, 10 kilometers, 100 kilometers. Once you get out, you know, past even 10,000 kilometers, which is nothing in terms of distances, that you really begin to lose, you lose all of these effects. Everything that happens, happens very, very close to that black hole. So I'll come back here on Friday. We're just about done with chapter 13. I'll finish this up and look at some of the examples of black holes that we have, that we've detected, and look at some of those and how we go about actually detecting them. And then we'll go on to look at our own galaxy. Questions? Questions? No? Have a good afternoon. I will see you on Friday.